again to the strange room podcast my name is jason barnard that was art magic the clean room a new song from their new album the songs of over england which uh, should be out around the the time of this uh, podcast release 
Art Magic, uh, guitarist Richard Oakes of Suede, and uh, singer-producer Sean McGee. Uh, welcome, guys. Hello. <laughs> Tell us about Art Magic, the songs of our England, and uh, the uh, song The Clean Room in particular. Well, um, the Songs of the Ringland is our second album, and it's been about six years in the making, um, because both of us are obviously pretty busy doing other things in between Art Magic Records, so um, Richard has managed to make two Suede albums? Yes, yeah, well, sort of on the point of three now. Yeah, yeah, the third one's just been wrapped up, Yeah, it? it is, yeah. Um, so you've been doing that, and I've been mostly actually doing a lot of work with Alison Moyer. I've been touring with her since 2013 as her backing vocalist and synth player. And now actually I'm also her musical co-director and I've even written a couple of songs with her on her last album, Other, which came out last year. So we've both been very busy, but we've, we've made time to slowly piece this record together. And part of the thing with this album was that our first album, we spent quite a long time when it actually came down to the production of it. It was, you know, months of work aside from the actual writing. And I think this time out, um, we talked about it before we started and decided that we, because we didn't have an abundance of time to make the record, we couldn't sit around second-guessing ourselves and trying different approaches. And we wanted to make a record that was kind of more direct than our first one as well, a little bit starker sounding. So we decided to let the timetable sort of dictate how we make the record. So we actually decided to record everything very quickly. Once we'd figured out the arrangements for the songs, we'd sort of just go in and bash it out quite fast. So the drums took Four days, I think. Today. Yeah, they did. Yeah. The guitars took eight days. Yeah. I spent ten days doing vocals, and a few days here and there of just kind of bits of synth playing and a few overdubs, and it was all kind of quite fast. Yeah. So six years to write, two weeks to record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No. But um, yeah. So it, it was it, even the process of making it, though, like that time when we actually started saying, okay, we're going to record it now, um, was. You add up all the days we spent on it, it's probably including the mixing, maybe six to eight weeks total. But even that was kind of spaced out over about nine months, starting in sort of April last year, I think, and finishing in January this year. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy with what we've come up with, actually. It's, it's good because it's a different approach for both of us to making a record. I mean, obviously, you could talk a bit about Suede and the way that records were made in the 90s and the timescales and the budgets. Yes, that's right, yeah. I mean, the biggest difference with this um, this record and the last one is that in the interim, I got much more comfortable with writing spontaneously. I never used to like that before. Um, when we did the first Art Magic record, it was all... All the music was stuff that I'd kind of worked on at home and poured over and, you know, done a lot of chin rubbing over... And um, it, it kind of that's great. I like working like that because you know it's you know you can take your time and everything. Um, but it's it's good that, you know in some ways the essence of an idea is at its purest form, you know at the moment of conception as it were. <laughs> and uh, and that's I wanted to kind of I thought we should um, approach the second Art Magic album exactly like that with every song. And in fact, the clean room, the one that we just heard, is is just it's probably the only example of a song where I had I turned up with at least a fully formed idea. Mm. Um, everything else was just written in, in Sean's um, back room, and it was a case of turning up and saying, what kind of mood are we in today? <laughs> a, a, gl- a glum mood, quite yeah. often. <laughs> um, but it worked, well, yeah. it worked very well, I think. It um, did, yeah. It's it, uh, most every, Well, right up until we started actually recording drums and everything, most of the songs were just a beatbox and an acoustic guitar, weren't they? Yeah. And they were kept very, deliberately kept very simple. And it was only when we came to start, 
you know, spending whatever money we had on recording studios that we started thinking about actual arrangements. Yeah. And again, try to keep it reined in as much as we could because we were very, on the last album, there was a lot of, um, I don't know what the best word to describe it, there was a lot of atmospherics going on. A lot of detail. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got really bored of that because... You can get bogged down in that and then forget. (laughs) I mean, I think our first record's very strong. I'm I'm very happy with it. I mean, it just feels like it was quite a long time ago. You know, we put it out in... July 2012, and we'd actually finished it by September 2011, and for various reasons, the release date kept getting put back. So that record's like six and a half years old now. Mm. So even by the time we started working on this, it was just a case of, well, you know, that was then, and this is now, and how do we sort of differentiate it? And I had done several, I'd produced several records up to that point, and I'd started to feel like I'd gotten a little bit stuck in a rut in terms of how I was treating things. So... I wanted to look at it in a slightly different way and try and make something that was a bit more stripped back with a bit less paint on the canvas. And also, um, and I know this is an unusual thing for a singer to say, because as Brian Eno famously said, singers abhor a vacuum and a vacuum is defined as when I'm not singing. I just got sick of hearing oh, yes. my, the sound of my own voice all the time, because if you put on the first Art Magic record, I start in bar five and it feels like I don't really shut up until literally <laughs> the last bar of the record. And so all the way through the process of us writing this new one, um, I had said, let's have bits where there is an obvious melodic musical part happening that's a hook of some kind that isn't me. And we tried to sort of bake that into the writing from the get go. So like quite often it would almost always actually I'd have the analog synth up and we'd have that ready. And I would be like, well, let's try and have like a musical bit here that's not me singing. And the clean room is a good example of that, actually, because if you listen to that, it's like the chorus is kind of the synth hook. Yes. Yeah. And it's very refreshing for me to listen to that and just think I resisted the temptation to just sort of be in every bar of it. Yeah. And I think the clean room is a good example of, well, I think it's sort of, it's the thesis behind the record actually very well realized. You know, it's got a very different sound to our first one. Another thing was that I didn't want to have anything where Richard was plugged into my computer and all the guitars were going through an amp simulator. I wanted it to be his stage rig in a room turned up really loud. Yeah. through a microphone through like moving through the air and i think you can hear that on the clean room as well it's like the guitar sounds are really great the drumming by alex alex thomas is just fantastic um yes. and it's 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 sort of just a few well thought out ideas stacked up together and i think it's a good sort of way into the record superb and this podcast really does cover the full period of art magic as well as kind of a collaboration of work that you you've done separately and and, and together sean you, you've next uh picked uh, Kate Havnevik and Rocks in the Ocean. I understand that's that's one of the older songs picked out in, from this period covered. That's right. Well, I mean, actually, it's even before me and Richard got together is when this was written. Now, this didn't come out until, uh, I think it might have been 2012 or 2013 or 2014. I think it was 2014. I lose track because um, quite often with Kate, the way that she works is her main collaborator is Guy Sigsworth, who's a producer, who's with Madonna, Seal, Britney Spears... Um, you name it, you know, and I, I was actually his programmer for four years and we're still very good friends and we still occasionally co-write together as well. Um, and Kate introduced me to Guy and Kate and I knew each other from our days in college because we were both at university in Liverpool together at the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. Um, she was doing a music course and I was doing the sound technology course. So I was basically doing a degree in sound engineering. She was doing a degree in music. And when I moved to London, I knew her like by sight and I knew her songs because a friend of mine called Duncan had done a lot of work with her when I was up in Lipper. 
But when I moved to London, to London, Duncan sort of put us together and we became friends and started writing together. And then gradually over the next several years, she helped me get the gig with Guy, which was great. But then I ended up doing a lot of work on her records as part of that work. And then we would write sometimes together and write sometimes with Guy. And Rocks in the Ocean was written in, I think, 2003 and then didn't turn up on a record till like 2014. So obviously it was quite a long time in demo form. Um, and it's quite, it, it's probably, it's nowhere near her best known song. And it's funny because there's a few other ones that I co-wrote with her. There's a song called um, Grace. There's another song called Solo. There's a song called Travel in Time, which in the sort of mid 2000s were popping up on American television constantly. There was something about the sound of them, which people doing syncs absolutely loved. And we've had loads and loads of requests to have them on shows like Grey's Anatomy and things like that. And actually, I think Kate holds a record for having had like the most songs used in episodes of Grey's Anatomy. She appeared, her songs appeared in the show something like six or seven times. But the reason I like Rocks in the Ocean is that it's slightly more connected to the sound of what me and Richard do now in a way. It's kind of, it's not so, there's plenty of electronics on it, but it's kind of driven by the bass guitar. It's in 6-4, which is kind of unusual. And it's got like quite an interesting sort of lyrical theme going on. And I like the fact that it's just slightly set apart from Kate's other work. And I think it's something I'm actually pretty proud of. So it may have been a long time in the gestation, but I think it was worth it.
So, uh, Sean, we, we now go forward into uh, about 2008, about, about a decade ago. A track that you did uh, with uh, Tempo Shark, Don't Mess With Me. That's a really um, direct, gutsy song, great vocals, very strong lyrics. Yeah, I, I really love Tempo Shark, and it was a shame because like, I thought the record that we made was great, and I actually made a second one with them as well that I was also very proud of, but it just didn't connect for some reason. But Don't Mess With Me actually went on to be the thing that I've been involved with that's been the most streamed. Because when the album came out, unfortunately, Tempo Shark was saddled with a terrible manager. Um, and a lot of the good things that nearly happened sort of went away because he just didn't really know what he was doing. And by the time he fired, he got fired by them, it was kind of too late to recover anything. So the album just sort of went away. Um, but Don't Mess With Me ended up having this kind of strange second life because what happened was, you know, with the advent of YouTube and sort of, people making their own sort of um, fan content for shows or films or even comics that they like. Don't Mess With Me got picked up on by some fans of Japanese anime, and they started doing these fan edits where they would pick their favourite villain from anime and put all the favourite scenes of the villain together, and then the music playing on top would be Don't Mess With Me. And it sort of became this, this little tiny corner of the internet. It became a little phenomenon of its own in this strange little place. And the number of these videos multiplied. So I've seen what I've seen Doctor Who related ones. I've seen Sherlock related ones. I've seen all sorts of weird anime ones that I don't really know what they are. But as a consequence, like the track has become like it's had over a million and a half streams now on YouTube and the similar on Spotify. Wow, you must be loaded. I, the 40 pence that I got was great. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, and I was really pleased because I think don't mess with me. It's like you say exactly what you said about the vocal. Rob's vocal is so gutsy and sort of. You know, it is a little bit camp, but it's also a little bit threatening, which is a very interesting combination. And I had such fun working with um, Rob from Tempera Shark, especially, because Rob is an extremely passionate person and very driven and very entertaining. But also he's prepared to go to the wall emotionally for what he thinks is right for the music that he's doing. And that was a really good combination. And one thing that happens when you've made a lot of records over the years is that some things are successful and some things aren't. And when something isn't successful, you get a little bit wounded by it because you think you did your best work and, you know, it should be more recognized when it is. But when all those feelings blow away after a couple of years have passed, what you're left with is the work itself. And it's how you feel about the work you've done really in the end that's the most important thing. Um, so I was very pleased that Don't Mess With Me has become this little mini phenomenon because I just think it's really great. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a really striking, striking track. Yeah, it was the opening track on the record, and the rest of the album is much more kind of electronic pop. So it was nice having this string-driven thing sort of to start things off that was like a bit of a kind of choice from left field. But once we'd finished it, there was no question it had to be the opening track because it just had such an interesting feeling and atmosphere of its own. So, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of it. Contact my people in my crown. I am king. 
I love their endless worshipping I am raw, a dinosaur But I will never be extinct So don't mess with me I'll shoot you down Don't mess with me Show me sex appeal Get on your hands and knees Forget about the meal It's best to keep me pleased Imagine if you will I'll meet on the block I've got time to kill So how about a quick fuck? I've come, it's been fun But won't you please disappear? Something tells me That you can't further my career In my crown, I am king I love their endless worshipping I am raw, a dinosaur But I will never be extinct So don't mess with me I'll shoot you down Don't mess with me song now which is from uh, the first album of yours from uh, Art Magic and uh, Half-Life understand this was done after Tempo Shark I think what happened was that I had finished the first Tempo Shark record like I'd literally just finished it or we were just starting the second one and Richard came around unusually on, on a Sunday wasn't it yeah yeah that was the only day you had half a day off on Sunday and that was where <laughs> you'd managed to squeeze yes <laughs> Um, and you came over with this track idea and I remember, and what used to happen was that Richard would come over with a kind of pretty fully formed backing track. So he'd have, he'd have actually, you know, done an arrangement, bass guitars, sample drums, maybe keyboards. And he had this absolutely fantastic, gorgeous, sort of liquid, beautiful backing track with all these gorgeous chord changes. And I immediately thought it was really great, but I sort of remember saying, I don't know if I'm, I'm so tired because I've just been working nonstop. I don't know if I'm going to have any ideas for this and I'm really terrified, but you know, I'll give it a try, but don't be surprised if nothing happens. And then I sort of opened my marathon half-life fellow on top of the track and thank goodness it did. Cause this is one of the things, not just on that record, but in my whole career that I am the happiest with. 
I'm a terrible critic of my own work and I find it very hard to listen to the work that I've done because you're always just kind of going, mm, you know, you could have done that better, could have done this better. Even with the things I've done that I know objectively are really good, just I'm a very terrible critic of my own work, but I'm not like that with Half-Life. Half-Life is really great from top to tail. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it as well. It's um, uh, an example of the kind of thing I was doing after the kind of stuff I got into writing after Swade split the first time in two, at the end of 2003. Um, I kind of wanted to do something different, of course, you know, instinctively and wanted to abandon the idea of verse, chorus, um, rock music, pop music, whatever. And um, Half-Life is a good example of something quite, it's very fluid. It hasn't really got a a rhythm it hasn't really got a one three five chord sequence or anything like that it's um quite difficult to pin any kind of melody on and i was aware of that when i gave that to sean but um he's got such an open mind about these things that um you know i was very pleased but not entirely surprised when something great came out from it and it was yeah it's just it, I'm, I'm really proud of it as a, as a finished piece of music and um i think it says a lot about the way we wrote when we did the first album and um, probably demonstrates the difference between that and the way we've been writing for the second album. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just really nice. I love playing it live as well. It's great. Yeah, the writing of it was interesting because the way we did things back then is I'd just have the mic on and I'd be recording ideas over Richard's music ideas that he'd brought over. And then um, quite often we'd start like putting together like backing vocal ideas and sort of harmonies and things um, to sort of prop up what was going on even at that stage when there was no lyrics and Richard would have like quite a lot of influence in that. And he'd say, well, that's good, but why don't you try going to that note instead on that harmony? And it felt quite collaborative. And Richard was almost always in the room with me while this was happening. And I think Half-Life, you can hear, there's all these kind of harmonies and stuff all over the place, a lot of which would have been Richard's idea. Um, but that was actually another change we made for the new record was um, I wanted to have as few backing vocals on the record as possible. Because mm -hmm. I felt like a lot of the writing on the first record, you know, because you had this kind of mass of harmonies, I wanted to see what it was like if you took all that away and I had to just make the song work with just one lead vocal. So there aren't actually that many places on the new stuff where you get like a big sort of stack of backing vocals. There's a couple here and there, but in yeah, the main, it's yeah. just one vocal and maybe a double track. Yeah. Um, but I think my favourite moment in the whole Art Magic catalogue is... Um, about 25 seconds, 30 seconds from the end of Half-Life where you can hear this guitar line come in where it's Richard playing through a pitch shifter pedal. I have no idea what the settings were. It would be completely impossible to reproduce. <laughs> but yeah. there's this gorgeous thing comes in and the bass goes lower than it has been and it, start, it just feels kind of really crunchy and strange. Oh, God, I love it so much. It's brilliant. <laughs> had you worked together before uh, at Magic? Or... No, we hadn't. We hadn't. It was... Um... Sean sort of I'd, I'd gone after Swade but I'd gone sort of into a music could almost turned back into a hobby for me really I, I was writing a lot and I sort of built moved house and built a new studio in a new house and um, but I was kind of you know it was all staying in the bedroom really and it was I was I was just about putting the feelers out for somebody to start writing with um, at the same time that Sean was in inquiring as to whether I was still alive or not this must have been <laughs> been about 2006 or seven yeah 2007, something like that yeah. and um uh it was through uh, well sean can tell the story better than me but it was through um a friend of his called davy and um my brother stephen um and the doctor who doctor who community fan community you know that meant that we managed to kind of get in contact with each other yeah because there um, wasn't sort of a, a point of contact for you anywhere i didn't know who was managing you or if you still had a manager or yeah 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 um 
And this whole thing happened because my friend David Darlington, he and I used to meet up once a month at this pub in Fitz in Fitzrovia called the Fitzroy Tavern, um, where to this day still and has been for about 30 years. On the first Thursday of every month, all the Doctor Who fans in the land um, descend on the pub to just hang, hang out and get drunk, really. <laughs> Um, and at that time, both me and Davey were freelancers. Davey now works as a content producer at Audible and has his own audiobook label as well. Um, but back then he was freelance and so was I. And quite often we would be sort of, we'd get to chucking out time and then we'd go on somewhere else for one more. And then we'd be there for two more hours and then we'd go on somewhere else for one more. And we were both extremely passionate about music and we would have these drunken conversations. And Richard's name came up at some point during the conversation and I just remember saying, he was really interesting. Where did he go? And then Davey was like, well, I know his brother a little bit because he's also a Doctor Who fan. So if you really want, I can try and put you in touch. And then the next day, Davey emailed me saying, just to check now that you're sober, <laughs> you're really sure about this, I will email Stephen and see if we put you in touch. And that's what happened. So I think Stephen got in touch with Charlie, your manager, and yes, then Charlie got sure in touch did. with me. Yeah. And then we sort of started the process from there. And I'm really glad we did. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had oh, we we sort of had one tentative um, day of writing. It must have been summer June two thousand and eight by this point, I think. Mm. And yeah, I remember Charlie sort of brought me round to your house in in North London and and um, plonked me down on your futon, and we and I had a guitar, and we just sort of we I think I brought some possibly brought some uh, demos, maybe what became Forever in Negative and one of the other songs, and. Um, we had at the at the end of the first writing session, we had um, a scratchy version of Forever Negative, and what was the other one? A I think the Homecoming was the other one. Um, and I remember going home and listening to what we'd done and sending an email to Sean saying, "I think we're onto something here," <laughs> you know? um, which was um, a muted way of saying I was really pleased with what um, what we came up with. For, you know, it sort of understood the what was behind the music and the mood of it. And I'd gone through a lot of life changes in the interim period as well. And it was all reflected there. And um, he sort of, he re-reflected it in the lyrics perfectly. So 
So Swade had about a, a decade away, Richard, which you're kind of alluding to, and, and, and also gave you time to work with Sean. Um, yeah. Did you bring the you know your new songwriting approach into the you know the recording of Blood Sports, the uh, Swade album? Yeah, can't, yeah, definitely. It was um, yeah. We'd, I'd been I'd been writing with Sean. I think Become the One You Love came out in 2012, and yeah. So to have, to have finished an album, you know, worked something all the way through to its conclusion. Um, before starting um, blood sports was um, was very useful indeed. Yeah, it kind of got me back into it oiled the cogs as it were. <laughs> and um, yes, it was uh, again. Um, blood sports was um, went through many different. That we started writing that I think towards the end of 2011, and we went through many different. We went all around the houses with it. Of course, it took us a long time. It took Swade a long time to kind of get back into their groove with writing, and and we had to kind of um, again sort of reach that point where we were. Um, comfortable with writing spontaneously because that was the only way that we could ever that we could sort of get something that everyone was happy with as if it was conceived in the room with everybody sort of concentrating and you know um, not writing separately in our houses alone like we used to back in the 90s um, because that wasn't yielding particularly good results um, so it was just yeah so I, I learned so many different techniques during that period and it helped it helped both art magic and swide we're playing a what are you not telling me which um you know, predominantly in, in in the first part of that is vocal and synth, which you know really gives it that atmospheric feel. Yes, well, I've chosen that one because it was. Um, I think we 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 got into kind of speed writing for Blood Sports, and we were doing um, sort of three pieces of music a day around at Ed Buller's house in Highgate. And uh, um, what are you not telling me? Was an example of one that we just sort of. It was a chord sequence that I came up with, and we sort of bashed it out with a Telecaster and a drum machine and some kind of keyboard bass. And um, it sounded a bit lumpy, but I mean, it was just, we were just trying to churn them out at that point, throw a load of things at Brett and see what stuck. And um, what he not telling me was kind of, he wrote the song around it and it was, and we liked it, but it was kind of, yeah, it's okay. Something's kind of missing here. And it almost got shelved, almost got binned. And uh, Neil Codling actually said, well, I'm going to take it away and rearrange it because it's just, you know, the arrangement was just guitar and it was all a bit lumpy and boring. And um, he said, I'm going to rearrange it. And he took it away and, and um, sort of glued himself to his computer <laughs> in his house and uh, for several weeks and uh, rearranged it and came up with this kind of soundscape, um, soundscape rearrangement of, of the music. And um, that kind of influenced um, the way Brett was um, approaching it vocally and uh, the finished result was just it was exactly what blood sports needed it needed a moment like that and um so it's a, a real example of a song that evolved completely and where um we all were able to bounce ideas off each other and um come with, come up with an unexpected uh, unexpectedly good result so that's why i've chosen that one What are you? What are you? What are you? 
Richard, we uh, have another track from Bloodsports, and it's sometimes I feel I'll float away. And, and for me, that's uh, one of one of the tracks that demonstrates that Suede coming back was not. You know, it wasn't about playing playing the the, the old songs from the nineties. The the new material was just as strong and, and vibrant and exciting as before. Yes, I think we we again when I when I talk about how long it took us to kind of come up with the right material for Bloodsports, it was because we. To, to kind of learn how to create that kind of epicness and that kind of drama that people love about Suede, you know, it doesn't just come out the moment you pick up a guitar. You have to dig a little bit deeper every time to come up with those results. And um, uh, Float Away was um, an example of, I think I, I had the verse and the bridge. I'd kind of come up with that at home, but I couldn't come up with a chorus for it that didn't sound just generic and, and dull. So, um, But when I was in the room with Ed, Neil and Brett, that was when I came up with the actual chorus, a big, big major, major chorus and sunshine and all that stuff. Um, but still keeping this kind of really strange romantic epicness about it. And um, it was just, yeah, and the band understood it completely. It was an example of we wrote the song and then we took it to rehearsal and Matt and Simon got it straight away because it was very kind of ingrained. That kind of song is ingrained into the, you know, their, their musical, um, whatever, running out of words. Um, but DNA. Yeah, exactly. DNA. <laughs> But it's yeah, and so and so we, when we came to record it, it was everyone knew what they were doing. Uh, you know, Ed understood completely because he recorded so so much of that kind of stuff with Suede. Um, but again, it's sort of I don't, when we were playing it live, it was a great sort of theatrical moment. We had a big gap in the middle of it, in between chorus one and verse two, and that was always fun. You know, to do a bit of theatre and all that. 
And so, yeah, and it's one that I, we still love playing it now. It's, it's just something really homely feeling about it. it. It doesn't feel like old school's way at all, but there's something so classic about it that it feels kind of homely to play, and I love it.
Now we have, Sean, a, a track that you worked on with Andrew Montgomery. I sing the, the Body Electric. and There is quite a lot of ties in with uh, this song and, and, and Andrew. Obviously, Andrew is formerly of Geneva, which were label makes of Suede on nude records. But also, in terms of making this album, you collaborated with um, you know a number of artists that you, you've worked with as well. Yeah, it's kind of, I just sort of dragged everybody into this, really. Now, one thing I should make clear, because we've um, talked a bit about working with Richard and sort of the world that he comes from, and then Andrew being label mates and all that stuff, is that I had this awful horror that people would think that I had some kind of fetish for Britpop, which I didn't and I don't. Like, most of that music is just execrable. Like, I have, I could go on at length about how Oasis are absolutely the worst thing to have happened to modern popular music, so I won't go on that particular um alleyway but the thing with Andrew and the thing with Richard is that Richard is, has a unique voice in the way that he plays guitar and the, the choices he makes with the chords that he uses are, are just so interesting and that was the reason that I wanted to work with him and the same with Andrew like Andrew has such a fantastic voice that he, he I, I like even long before I'd thought about trying to get in touch with Richard I'd thought for a long time that I wanted to work with Andrew and it just took me a while to finally find out a way of getting in touch with him to do it and so um, Andrew was in this project when I met him called St. Famous with somebody down in Brighton where he used to live. And it was like, the songs were kind of okay, but they sort of needed a bit of a kick up the arse, really. And it, it, I, he was going to do that record and I was kind of working away in the background with him on this other stuff. And there was just something between us that clicked from the moment that we got together in the studio. Um, because the first weekend we got together, we wrote like two of the songs on the record. One of them is a song called uh, Making Up For Lost Time, which I think might have been the second thing we wrote, which is this gorgeous stripped-back piano thing. And I, I'm not the world's greatest keyboard player, but for somehow all these really unusual, almost jazz-like chords came out, and Andrew put this gorgeous vocal on top of it. Um, and it was obviously a sign that we were going somewhere different. But a certain way into the process, um, I suggested that he write with some friends of mine, Jody and Simon, um, Jody Gaston and Simon Nielsen, who are two-thirds of a band called Also Heart, and I had done some work with Also Heart under the previous incarnation. They used to be called the Ganstons. And I suggested that they get together with Andrew. And they really clicked as well. And I remember going to visit Andrew in Brighton after they'd written a few things together. It was like they'd written two things that were absolutely fantastic. And then he was sort of like, oh, yeah, and we sort of had this half idea. And he played me what they had for I Sing the Body Electric. And I was completely blown away. I thought it was so, so gorgeous. And they had a verse and a chorus, really. I think there might have been like sort of mumbled lyrics. I'm not even sure they were finished. And so it ended up being this kind of, to get it finished, it was a slightly written by committee job because I loved it so much that on the walk back to the station from Andrew's flat in Brighton, I had written this idea for the coda, which is the melody that he, him and Jody trade off on at the end of the song. And when we were working on it together and Jody and Simon were in the studio when we were actually producing it, like it needed some tweaks to the lyrics. So me and Jody ended up helping write the lyrics for the second verse with Andrew. So it was all being kind of passed around between the four of us. And so they're all on it. And then also I brought Kate Havnevik in to do some backing vocals. Um, so you've got Simon singing, you've got Jody singing, and then you've got me and Kate doing BBs as well. You've got, um, sorry, Jody singing, Andrew singing, Simon playing piano, me and Kate doing backing vocals. We just really managed to capture something. It has this beautiful kind of melting feeling. And I was definitely thinking of like, you know, people. I remember specifically thinking of Cowboy Junkies, and that's why you've got lots of kind of slide, slide guitar through 10 second reverb type things. But there's something about the passion in the vocal and the sensuality of it all, because it's an incredibly sensuous song. 
Um, and that's always very hard to get right because, you know, for something that we do so much of, like sex and sensuality is an incredibly difficult subject to write about convincingly because it often just comes off as crass. And I think this song, Andrew, has really captured something truly sensual. And I just absolutely adore it. And I think as well, this album, because I just sort of was bringing everybody in. So uh, Richard plays guitar on two songs. Ben Ellis, who has played bass with Art Magic a bunch of times and now is a bass player for Ricky Pop um, and for Swerve Driver. Uh, he co-wrote one of the songs on the record with me and Andrew as well. So it was definitely a kind of family affair. It was like bringing in everybody I knew to make this record. And it was a real labor of love. And it was very well received which I was pleased about because, you know, and a voice like Andrew's doesn't come along every day. And I think that I, between us all, I think we did him justice because the songs are fantastic. I think the production works really well. I think everyone's individual musical performances work really well. And I just think as a whole, it's a body of work I'm very proud of.
Now, Sean, we have uh, Alison Moye and the Rarest Birds, which is from Alison's album last year, Other, and I think it was also a single. This song already is has been identified as some as Alison's best work and is a song that I understand you co-wrote. That's right, yeah. Um, me, Alison, and Alison's other musical director, John Garden. My relationship with John has been very interesting because he was the person who auditioned me for the Alison band at the beginning of the process. And when I say the Alison band, there are just the three of us on stage. That's how it's been since 2013. So John is an fant- absolutely fantastic keyboard and guitar player, like so adept. So he's kind of doing all the main sort of musical driving. I'm singing backing vocals and playing a little bit of synthesizer. And then obviously Alison is there um, as the star of the show. And my relationship with the two of them has changed a lot because obviously when I was employed, it was just to do BVs. And then gradually it was like, well, I can play a bit of synth, I can play a bit of guitar. And then like I'm a programming is one of the things that I'm really good at it. So actually, because this is an electronic based set, you end up having to do a lot of programming ahead of time because a lot of stuff is coming off the laptops off stage, rhythm tracks and so on are sort of pre-generated. So I was doing a lot of that work as well with John. And then eventually there was a certain point when Alison said, would you like to try and give me some ideas to perhaps turn into songs? So we started putting some ideas together. And I think the very first one we had was The Rarest Birds. So I went down to where John was living in Gloucestershire. He's moved since then, but he was back in Stroud in Gloucestershire back then. And I had this verse idea on the piano. And then I had actually, a, just it was just a piano part. It wasn't a vocal or anything. So I had a drum track and a piano thing. I had a really interesting sounding verse and a frankly, slightly sappy sounding chorus that John immediately said no that's never gonna work and he was right um and he was like he did that thing that occasionally happens where someone says well maybe we could try this instead and his hands just fell on all the correct chords one after another and it worked kind of instantly so we had this backing track and then we spoke to Alison a bit more and she was saying well maybe you'd like to come up with some melodic ideas for it and I could fit words to your melody um so I took what me and John had done and I sat down in my studio one night and I just bashed out this melody over the top of it, just singing la, 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 la. And I didn't really think about it too much. It was definitely one of those things where I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, man, the music was, was moving through me, which does sometimes happen. Half-Life was like that. But I didn't feel like I was kind of touched by the muse. It was just like, I'm just going to do this thing. And maybe it was good that I wasn't thinking too much about it because it's a big deal when an artist of that stature wants you to write a song for them. But I did it and thought it was probably okay. <laughs> sent it on to Alison. Um, and then a few days later, she sent back a version with her singing the vocals with the r- lyrics that she'd written. Um, and then eventually that got passed on to Guy Sigsworth, who, my old connection, and he's been producing Alison's last two records. So he took what we'd done and turned it from a demo into a proper track. And then it ended up being a single. And it was on the set list for the Other World Tour, which I participated in last year. So we did 59 shows all around the world. And we played the rarest birds at every single one. And I think one of the moments I will never forget was, because it's a song about togetherness and it's very much directed at the LGBT community. And speaking as a gay man myself, obviously that's something I'm very touched by. But watching other people get touched by that when you're playing it live is a huge deal. And that happened over and over again around the world. You'd see people having a really emotional reaction to the song. But the best one was in Wellington, New Zealand, where I just remember there were a bunch of people who got up from the standing because it was a seat sorry it was a seated gig and these people got up and walked to the front and were standing there with their arms around each other just kind of swaying along with the song and you sort of think you go through your ups and downs as a working musician trying to get people on board trying to touch them sometimes trying to keep body and soul together and then a moment like that happens to you on the other side of the world and you just think it's all worth it 
So I'm, I'm couldn't be prouder. And to the thing with Alison as well, and this ties into some of the other things about our new album, is that I grew up on synth pop. I, from the very moment I saw Depeche Mode on top of the pops when I was like four or five years old, I was fascinated by the whole idea of it, by the sound and by that way of working. And so I was a huge fan of Depeche Mode. I was a huge fan of Yazoo and many of the other acts from that era. And I carried that love with me for a long time. And that's one of the reasons I became a programmer is because I just wanted to be in that world. I, you know, I don't think of myself as a keyboard player, but I do think of myself as a synthesist. I'm very good with synthesizers. I know what I'm doing and I love that world. But doing all this touring with Alison was kind of the closing of the circle as well, because this had been a particular musical direction that had nourished me through my whole life. And going on stage and participating in that world and bringing some of those old songs back to life and doing all the programming for them was kind of like, you could just feel like the curtain coming down on something for me personally. Um, and we'll come back to this when we talk about um, the songs of other England's title track, but it definitely some other things started to kind of weigh in on my musical psyche and move me in a different direction as a result of all this work as well.
Richard, um, we're coming over to uh, Night Thoughts, uh, Suede's last album, and uh, I Can't Give Her What She Wants. I've read a little bit about this, understand that uh, much of the material for this uh, album was written written with uh, Neil before taken to uh, Brett. That's right, yeah. We weren't doing it on a, a sort of song-by-song basis. We, um, we started writing Night Thoughts very quickly after we finished Bloodsports. I think we finished the tour, and it was only a matter of a few weeks before we were getting back together at Ed Buller's new house in Highgate and um, and starting, you know, with the blank canvas and, and saying, you know, you sort of do a lot of talking first and you say, what kind of record are we going to make? And of course, it, you know, there's, it's all a bit pointless because it changes, you know, every, with every note you write and every lyric that's written, the direction of the album changes. So, but you do, you do need a starting point. And these two songs that I've chosen from my thoughts, I can't give her what she wants and I don't know how to reach you, were pretty much the first two songs that got um successfully written um i don't know how to reach it was the very first piece of music we wrote it was the, the canvas was completely blank and all we all we knew is that we wanted to do we were very proud of blood sports but we wanted to do um an album that wasn't quite so song based you know blood sports was 10 songs and um it has a, a it had a theme and everything but it was it was still sort of 10 separate songs and we wanted to do something that was an album that was much more a journey you know we we knew that much it's quite an, I, I find it quite an, it's daunting but it's an exciting moment when the canvas is completely blank and i'm sitting there with the guitar and it's like okay we're starting a new album what what's it going to sound like you know <laughs> what notes am i going to play and um i don't know how to reach you with the very first notes i played and um that riff on the verse and uh and i can't give her what she wants i think was again an example of bef- before we got to the point of knowing what the album was going to be um, it was very experimental at first, and I can't give her what she wants. Is uh, is a, a piece I came up with that that originally I thought sounded quite sort of medieval. <laughs> that was what <laughs> that was what I wanted to do something a little bit you know baroque or something I don't know. And it was written on acoustic guitar, and um, it was 
I, I really liked it and I really liked what Brett came up with for it. But I think nobody was really sure about it until we completely finished it. I was, I was, you know, it was a total A-list winner for me. It was only when we actually finished, when the arrangement was finished and we finished recording it, that everybody else agreed. Um, I really love playing it, again, playing it live. It's, um, we were able to strip it down to just one guitar and one vocal and we play it live. And Oh no, there are keyboards as well. Again, it, it, those first, those two songs, I'm going to talk about both songs, they're both so... Uh, the, their starting point was so free and untethered that um, it makes me sort of more proud of the end result. It's towards the end of an album that you start writing song, you think the album needs this, there's this missing, we need something like this. And that's when you start referencing the past and it becomes a bit stifling, um, box ticking and stuff like that. And we try to avoid that as much as possible with every new album that we do. But um, these two songs I've chosen were, yeah, like I say, the, the genesis point for them was was just the canvas completely blank and everyone else is panicking. But I find it really exciting. You know, this, this is the starting point. You know, what are you going to create? I love that. She dials a number with her fingers on her phone And the keys are falling from her coat As I weave my fingers round her perfume throat No, I can't give her what she wants I can't give her Street. Hear 
The clatter of her pretty, pretty feet And all that's left is ashes of her sorry little note So nobody can ever read the sentences she wrote In terms of our next song by Suede from Night Force, I don't know how to reach you. For me, seeing Suede live, you talked about the album working more of a as a whole piece of music, and that really shone for me with the production of the Night Force film uh, by Roger Sargent, and, and you could really see the, the evolution of the, the story told in song and in that film. Yes, that was brilliant. It was, um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I didn't really take much part in the... Um, the film was always the sort of concept that I just got emails about until I saw the finished. I saw some rushes, and then when I saw the finished thing, it was like my mouth fell open. It was like I didn't know it was going to be this good. And I think Roger Sargent did a brilliant job, and it was um, yeah, really brought some some life into the songs. And we knew we wanted to when we toured the album that we wanted to play the whole thing because we'd written it as a when we arranged it, you know, when we came to finish it and arrange it, it was it was done as a whole journey um, that made sort of at least to me made sort of cohesive sense and um uh the film really kind of nails that as well it's um so yeah and, and all the imagery was amazing and just to, to it gave life to the songs we were playing behind a screen when we actually toured it so we didn't get to sort of see you know we didn't get to watch the film while we were playing but the audience we could we could see through the screen and we could see the audience and their kind of reaction to the imagery and and it kind of it, it, well it for me for me personally it helped me perform them with a, with a degree more of um sort of emotion really because you can see it just adds an extra depth really and um yeah i don't know how to reach you is, is brilliant and this thing all goes a bit stroby at one point and it's just it's got that big long wig out ending with all the um we, we, everything goes a bit rock for the ending and it's just it's brilliant i love it when you write a, a song like I Don't Know How to Reach You, just the, the music, do you have an idea what the lyrical feel may be, or do you just kind of hand that over? No, no, it, it, it's, um, it's complete. All you can do is create a mood, create a kind of a, a palette, and um, it really is up to Brett what he wants to actually sing about. 
sometimes it's quite surprising that he'll come up with a lyric that's a lot more brutal than you thought it was going to be or a lot softer than you thought it was going to be. Um, so there really isn't any point in trying to second guess him at all. He's very instinctive about his writing. and um, But, you know, it's, it works both ways. Often you can write a piece of music and think, this is the best thing ever and hand it over to him. And he just sort of goes, yeah, I don't really like it. You know? <laughs> so you, you grind your teeth a bit. But that's just that's all part of the journey. You know, it's you, like I say, you have to dig a bit deeper each time. And so does he, you know, and it's just it's worth it. The struggle is worth for the, for the result it really is.
And now Richard and Sean were closing with a, a pair of tracks from Art Magic and, and the, the new album, The Songs of Other England, uh, the first of which is uh, Black Flowers Bloom. Why did you choose this song in particular? Oh, because it's so jolly, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, it's it's one that, again, it was a very, it was written spontaneously, just turned up, plug in an acoustic guitar and start fiddling about with chords. Um, and... The result, I just, I mean, it was, I, I love the piece of music, but the lyrics were, I remember when I sort of got the lyrics, probably about the second or third time, and I don't always get lyrics immediately, but I sort of got what Sean was on about and completely nailed it, and it was like, no, this is brilliant, this is exactly what was in my head when we actually sat down and wrote the music. Oh, really? Well. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those, one of those moments. And I've just, yeah, I've loved it. It's, it. It didn't really go through a whole load of different changes, did it? It was kind of there no, straight away. Yeah, it was like all the pe- all the pieces that make it up are there in our demo, pretty much. Yeah, which was again just a beatbox and an acoustic guitar. Um, and then, yeah, and then Alex um, Thomas turned that into um, a proper sort of rhythm track, and it kind of shuffles nicely. And there's real drums on it now. Like we must give Alex a proper shout out because yeah, I discovered yeah. Alex because we needed a drummer. And we needed someone who could like preferably record at their own facility. And you, there's a lot of people now do recording by remote where you send them stems, they record the drums, send them back. We did a bit of that on the first record, actually, with a guy yeah. called Mike Sorrentino in New York, who yes. um, was playing in the Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark musical at the same time that he was right, doing this, <laughs> which must have been terrible for him, because obviously that was just, you know, a long, evolving disaster for everybody involved. Um, <laughs> But he was very nice and did some really good work for us. And this time I was trying to find somebody in London. And through Google, I found Alex Thomas. And Alex has played, he currently plays with Anna Calvi, who's one of my current favourite artists. Yeah. She's just brilliant. Um, he's played with John Cale. He's played with Square Pusher. He's played with Uncle. He's played with Badly Drawn Boy. Um, and it turns out that he lives 10 minutes walk from me and has a brilliant studio in his basement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we would turn up and he did drums, I think, for 16 songs in four days. Yes. Working 10 till 6. He's just really instinctive and he would, had everything set up perfectly so the recordings were beautiful and he just did these gorgeous little performances and we had to give him very little in the way of notes. Yeah. And um, Black Flowers Bloom is, it's so minimal, but like if you listen to the fill, like going from verse two to bridge two, it's just perfect. It's moments like that that really elevate the work that you've done. And I knew that we had made a good demo and it took a long time for me to get the lyrics right. So it was hanging around for ages before it was really in contention. And then Alex just really brought it up several levels. He did such good work. I mean, part of the reason it hung around for so long was that the original lyric, I had this idea about what it must be like for someone who lives in North Korea, like specifically in Pyongyang. So they have, they have it slightly better than the peasant farming in the countryside, just doing subsistence farming, but they've got nothing really. And they can't stand the regime they live in. And they can't say anything about it. And it was, I was trying to think about, could you write a song from that perspective about how you have to present this outward appearance all the time whilst you're just inwardly just consumed with hate and frustration about the situation that you're in that you can do nothing about. Um, and it was rubbish. <laughs> I spent ages and ages and ages trying to get it right. I must have gone back and forth on it for, for months, just looking at it changing it, looking at it, changing it, working on it, working on it, not being able to make it work. And I just put the whole thing in the bin and started again. And then I wrote the new lyrics probably in like an afternoon. And suddenly it all sort of made sense. And whilst I will concede that it isn't the jolliest song in the world, I li- I think it's really great. And it's, it's the sort of thing that feels like what me and Richard do instinctively together incredibly well. 
I think it just shows us off incredibly well. And I think that there's a sense of restraint about it that I find very appealing. It never quite sort of boils over. It's very much kind of held. And there's this, there's like this, a bit in the guitar line coming into the chorus where you can hear Richard playing like two notes against each other on adjacent strings and beat together in a way that is just, I love, it's one of the sounds I love in guitar music. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of that kind of tension in there. I just think it's great. I mean, yeah, it's never going to be a single, but it doesn't <laughs> stop it being fantastic.
We're now to our final track, the title song of the songs of Over England. And on your website, you, you talk about how you've you've weaved different influences into into this album in particular. Um, Sean, you know, a little bit of a sort of folkier influence at times, and and, and character sketches and narratives of of people. And, and Richard, you um, talk about um, bringing in you know some some more prog or you know Peter Gabriel type Genesis yeah. influences, talk talk yes, um, stuff. I think we might go full prog on the next record, and that's even <laughs> a joke. I mean, I, I've been listening to the Landmarks Done on Broadway constantly recently. Well, me too. Um, when, we, when we were writing this album, it was never off when we were doing <laughs> the whole thing. You can't just don't just cherry pick. It's got to be the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, all or nothing, including the Slipper Man and everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was when I say folk music. I mean, there is a terrible tendency now to say, "Oh, I've picked up an acoustic guitar, therefore I'm making a record." Like. There was a singer from a particularly well-known band who did a solo record a little while ago and did the press for it saying, oh, yeah, I've kind of made this folk record. And I, I, I don't think he liked their work anyway, but I wanted to reach into the stereo when I heard them being interviewed on Six Music and just sort of put my hands in their throat because it's like, it's not folk music just because you've unplugged. When I'm talking about like my developing love of, of English folk music, I'm, I'm specifically talking about English song and English music. And I like it served quite plain. Well, this comes back to what I was saying earlier about um, the closing of that particular kind of electropop circle um, by working with Alison Moyer, is that whilst I was doing the first tour with her for the Minutes album back in 2012, I would go out on days off and, you know, buy lots of music because that's sort of what I do. And one particular day in Sheffield, I had years ago been introduced to a few folk things by some friends at college. Um, and one of them was a duo called Chris Wood and Andy Cutting. And Chris Wood was a fiddle player and Andy Cutting plays the diatonic accordion. And they used to play a lot of French music and then gradually started changing their repertoire to playing English music and Morris music. And I heard a little snippets of it and thought it was quite interesting. And then I saw this Chris Wood compilation. It was like a two CD anthology of his work. And I thought, oh, I've heard good things about him. I remember that wooden cutting thing. Maybe I'll buy this and give it a try. And it was kind of really transformative. I, I just found his... It turns out he's an incredible guitarist as well, and he's also a songwriter and an extremely good one. And um, whilst I'd bought the odd folk record here and there, I would buy records by Waters and Carthy, I'd buy records by Birdchamp, things like that. I, this was the first time it was like, no, this is something I want to really start exploring. And so I started buying a lot of folk records, new and old, and going to a lot of gigs, you know, going to see Spies and Bowden, going to see Andy Cutting playing solo, going to see Chris Wood, going to see Bellowhead, going to see... Um, all sorts of people and really finding myself moved by it. And I think part of it was that, especially in the bands where there would be like a band or a duo or a trio rather than just one person on stage. One of the things I loved about it was that this sense of a kind of a musical meeting of minds actually happening right in front of you, as opposed to the kind of way that I've always had to work in the studio where you're sort of layering up ideas one on top of another, not in real time. And so being exposed to that kind of, way of thinking about music was just I mean obviously you can go out and see that with all sorts of bands playing live and the kind of connection they make with each other as they play but seeing it happen in that particular musical area it just really struck a chord with me and you know it even to the point where I started learning to play the diatonic um, accordion myself and I'm, I'm not good but it's something I get a lot of pleasure from um, but I was always at the same time I never had a thought that I wanted me and Richard to make a folk record because first of all 
it sounds like the wrong message because, like I was saying before, it's like people would just think, oh, it just means they've picked up an acoustic guitar, yeah, and plugged yeah, in, and, and kind you know, of dabbling pointlessly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also, it's like if you're talking about actually really making folk music, then you have to be plugged into that tradition, you have to be plugged into that music and to those songs. And one of the things with with the with the songs is that I, whilst I love to hear them, I wouldn't feel comfortable singing them because I'm obviously kind of middle class modern kind of person and suddenly singing like songs of deprivation about people like about conscripted soldiers or you know people who you know taken the king shilling and end up unwillingly in the navy or people working in the mine or you know that sort of thing is not an area i'd feel comfortable singing about and it's sort of like that's why and it was one of the things about actually learning to play the accordion to play this music and play morris music and so on is that the the tunes are just the tunes you can plug into them in a way that it's, I would find it much har- harder to plug into the songs. But where the influence came out lyrically was this thing of like, there'd been quite a few songs on the record where rather than try and write something in any way autobiographical, they ended up being sort of sketches of people. So you've got the farmer in the field about this farmer and his metaphorical plowing and what it means. And you've got a lonely fisherman spending his, all his time on the riverbank because he's just in this strange frozen period of his life. And you've got the woman in the fruit of the mystery talking about the loss of her faith. And you've got the woman in um, the boys on book of birds doing, talking about how much she loved bird watching when she was a kid and how she's lost this connection and is trying to get it back because she feels like somewhere along the way, something really important to her has gone missing. And so that's where that influence came out lyrically. And I don't think really there's any influence musically at all because there was no point at which I was saying, Oh, this is where we need to bring in this particular kind of folk idea. Yes, no, yeah. You know, like, and so the songs of other England is a song about folk songs and about the singers of those songs and it's a tip of the hat to them and how much they mean to me, but it was never going to be. And now we need to kind of move in that direction. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, and it was written, when was it written? 2014? I think 2014, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we, ha- I remember when we actually wrote it. And you came up with a title. I was thinking, oh, good album title. And then you said uh, straight away album title. Yeah. And then, you know, 18 months later, we were thinking, hmm, maybe not. Yeah. Once, <laughs> once Brexit happened, my, there was a moment I actually came up with an alternative title, which thank you. I'd never even mentioned, never mind used. Mm-hmm. But my great fear was that people are going to think it's an album about Brexit and everybody is sick of it's hearing and using the word. Brexit. England, man. It's like a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was a point a few years ago when it seemed like there was a rehabilitation happening where there were people who were making strides to show that Englishness could be something positive and something that didn't have to be horrible. Yeah. There's a particular word. What am I thinking of? Um, begins with a J. It's like patriotism, but worse. Jingoistic. Jingoistic. That's exactly it. And it, that jingoism has come back in full force and I would feel kind of very uncomfortable if people thought that that's the kind of record we were making. So it's very clear. It's like, you know, we are the 48%. We didn't vote for this. We, I think it's fair to say, both consider ourselves Europeans. Yeah. But, you know, that at the same time, this that the title track of the album is about those songs, and those songs will have been buffeted by the waves and wind, depending what's going on politically over the centuries since they were written. Yeah, and it yeah. doesn't make any less worthwhile or any less beautiful or any less meaningful. And you can't let the current climate kind of dictate things like that anyway we did for a while we thought we can't really call the album that and then we just thought we kind of turned around again and thought well you know, yes we can i mean yeah. if anybody you know if anybody thinks it's about brexit then they're a fool you know and, and of course like anybody who looks at my for longer than five seconds will realize pretty damn quick that that's not the world that i live in i mean we yeah. briefly considered writing a new song to open the record 
just being like, oh, God, what have you done? <laughs> okay, what have we done? Yeah, kind of, <laughs> if you know the final cut by Pink Floyd, we, we needed something. Oh, we can do that next time. That can be the opening <laughs> of the, the, pro, the first. <laughs> well, I have been listening to Animals um, a lot recently. Favorite record of last year was Roger Waters' um, Is This the Life We Really Want, which is just amazing. Maybe we should just go the full. Yeah. But it's not going to be like, you know. Capes. No capes. No, <laughs> like, ELP are one of my least favorite bands in the history of music. <laughs> it's not going to be that. Um, yeah. But I very much enjoyed actually after going to one of the four Night Thoughts launch shows at the Roundhouse, um, which I thought was wonderful. And Night Thoughts is actually my joint favorite suede record with Dogman Star. I just think it's absolutely real hard work. But I did take great glee in congratulating Richard afterwards on making an Aurelian record. <laughs> and I mean that with all kind of, you know, thought because... Yes, you know, I know where that comes from. Well, my other half is, like, he's basically single-handedly keeping the British prog rock industry alive, but he loves Marillion. Their records are always... They make really tasteful musical choices, and there's never sort of horrible synth solos. So, yeah, so maybe the next record will be some kind of Marillion meets Genesis meets... You know, the Copper family. (laughs) (laughs) So what's next? Uh, So after the release of uh, the Songs for England, uh, you're playing a few live shows? We've talked about it. We haven't actually got anything in the diary yet. It's um, Time is not really on our side because I'm going on tour again, um, probably this year, although I'm still waiting for confirmation on that. And then you've probably got a new suede record coming. Yeah, we're um, uh, mixing at the moment. I don't think we've got a release date yet but yeah that'll be everything gearing up for that basically are you able to share any anything about that that record you know in terms of how how it was written or any any of the the sort of song textures i should leave that to the professionals really (laughs) well i got a nice photo on twitter the other day of some of the dogs who are in the studio that's the that's the kind of sharing that we're doing at the moment no i think it's um you know we're going to reveal about it but i don't think i'm in that position at the moment I'm really proud of what we've done. It's like we're mixing with Alan Mulder. I can say that much in uh, his studio in Wilsdon. It's just, it's, I'm, it's, it's been a joy the whole thing. So it sounds like you're both as busy as ever. You've got packed schedules, and uh, I wish you all the best with the release of the songs of Over England. And uh, you've got a Bandcamp site and a, a web, a, your own website. That's right. Yeah. So artmagicmusic.com is the website, and the new album is coming out on all streaming services everywhere in the usual way on June 15th, I think it is. But if you want to buy the CD, you'll need to come direct to us on Bandcamp and you can find us at artmagic.bandcamp.com. You'll find the new album on CD and the rest of our back catalogue there as well. Perfect. Well, let's play the title track, The Songs of Other England, from the Art Magic album. And uh, Sean and Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and it's been great to to share and get a taste of your world over the past uh, past decade. Thank you very much, Jason. Much appreciated. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Right. Bye. I can't taste I felt I'd walked 
you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider supporting me on patreon patrons get access to unedited interviews as they're done news plus even access to my exclusive interview archive all your support goes into keeping the show running and moving forward and getting amazing guests to support me just go to patreon.com forward slash strange brew pod or go to thestrangebrew.co.uk forward slash about. Thanks very much, and any reviews on your podcasting services are greatly appreciated. Thank you.